Welcome to Indie Film Weekly, a No Film School podcast. I'm Liz Nord. I'm Eric Lures. I'm John Fusco. And I'm Charles Hain. It's May 24th, 2018, and on this week's show, The Quiet Indie Making a Loud Noise at the International Box Office, our first look at Red's pretty amazing Hydrogen One phone, and as always, news you can use about new gear, upcoming deadlines, indie film releases, and Ask No Film School. Hello and welcome to this week's show from downtown Brooklyn, New York. As always, we're here to bring you everything you might have missed while you were busy making films. And we're so excited to have Charles in the booth with us this time. We often record separately. So hi, Charles. Hey, it's so nice to be back with four of us in the booth and it's not like 90 degrees. Yeah, it's fun. And by the way, speaking of weather, I'm glad, how, how warm is it I'm exactly? glad you started there, I'm Charles. Wondering. I'm glad you started with temperature because I know that everyone who listens was on the edge of their seats at the end of last show wondering what was going to happen if Rooftop Films got rained out. And it did, you guys. It did. Dun, dun, dun. So what happened was that they rescheduled for Sunday. Sunday night was the opening night of Rooftop Films, and it ended up being this spectacular evening with this gorgeous sunset. And I just have to say to those of you in New York or who are visiting New York, if you do get a chance, of course, we always love to send folks to the Rooftop Films because they're all cool. But if you get a chance to see any at the Greenwood Cemetery, which is this new venue this year where they had the opening night, it's very cool. It's really atmospheric and you're, you have to sort of take a 10-minute walk from the entry to get to to where um, the films are shown and you're walking through this, you know, dark, historic cemetery. It's it's really cool and creepy. Are they going to have any more? Uh, yeah, there, I think there are two or three more scheduled at that particular site this summer. So I'm missing so many this week. Yeah. I'm gone. I'm leaving on Friday for vacation, and I feel like... That's it's just when Rooftop Films has started, and I missed last week too, and I'm missing this week. So American Animals is playing there this mm, week. I think I want to see that too. Um, yeah, lots of good ones. Well, at least you'll be on vacation. That's pretty awesome. True. So speaking of creepy places, uh, a surprising film just joined the all-time best-grossing list of horror films after classics like It, The Exorcist, and Jaws. The film is John Krasinski's A Quiet Place, which, according to Variety, has topped the $300 million mark at the worldwide box office. I mention it here because this could be considered an indie success story. Yes, John Krasinski and his wife, Emily Blunt, who co-stars in the film, are big stars. And yes, it had a budget of $20 million, which for most of us sounds like a dream. But $20 million is considered very modest in Hollywood and, in fact, is still considered an indie budget by Film Independent, albeit at the top of the scale. Not to mention, it's only Krasinski's second feature as a director, his first horror, and it premiered at Indie Stalwart South by Southwest. Here's what's especially interesting for us. One, the film's best foreign gross so far has been in China with $19 million, bucking the idea that American independents can't get traction in that huge market, which is on track to become the biggest box office market in the world. Granted, if you want to make a film that plays well in China, you might want to consider one like this with very little dialogue, leaving less room for mistranslation. Also, it goes to show that the high-concept horror renaissance continues its rise. So if you're working on a horror like Get Out or A Quiet Place, now is your time to shop it around. You best believe that studios and distributors will be looking for the next breakout horror hit. Has anyone seen this yet? 
I was going to ask. Still have not seen it. I mean, apparently $300 million worth of people have seen it, but have you all seen it? My wife is pregnant, and we have been warned not to see it. Oh. And the baby has seen it. No, but but, uh, as apparently it is a very uh, interesting movie if you are pregnant. Apparently there's a terrifying birth scene. Yeah, I just- So we're waiting. I just saw it last week. I finally got around to seeing it because I had some free time, and I used my movie pass, and it's playing at like one, one theater, one or two more theaters in New York still. Uh, I I know I hate <gasps> I hate sharing my opinion uh, on things. I can't believe John is going to tell us what he thought. I don't know. I just like it, it was it was very hyped up for me, and like the very thing that Charles just said just kind of like ruined a lot of it for me. Like it was it was a really well done movie, but like yeah, and I don't think this is a spoiler, but you're like you're living in a world with aliens that detect sound and you decide to have a child like that just it doesn't really make sense to me but i mean kind of ruined the whole i couldn't suspend my disbelief not every i'm imagining birth control is not as easy to get so you're saying like celibacy is the option in the alien future i mean maybe of course it's not as easy as easy to get but i'm sure like abstinence only doesn't work it sounds kind of funny though like imagine like in the world where aliens are attacking sound a baby will bring us all down. Well, yeah. Or like he invites his <laughs> mother-in-law can't... over, and like she just destroys the entire concept of the <laughs> film. The aliens break into that. Birth is like a pretty loud ordeal, and a baby is like a pretty hard thing to keep quiet. Yeah. Uh, you so know. they decided to have the baby after they already knew they were in this world. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, and wow. like the other thing is hmm. the other thing that just kept bringing me out was like how many times they would put their finger up to their mouth to be like. oh. We have to be quiet, like that physical action. I was just like, yeah. It would be a good drinking game, though. Like, how many times their fingers go up to the Or, like, if, if yeah. somebody forgets, it like, would hey, be. you know? Like, yeah, exactly. Like, who forgets? Like, <laughs> you have to be quiet the entire time. There's no, like, anyways. So, you know what probably doesn't do well there? Podcasts. Oh, no. You put, you know, Indie Film Weekly comes on, the aliens just break through the house. Yeah. <laughs> but there, there is a headphone scene, which is also uh, pretty. I don't know. Depending on how you like corny stuff, it's either corny or nice. So that's all I'll say about it. That was actually a lot for you. Yeah, yeah. I, I like. I, overall, it was fine. Overall, I liked it. Um, <laughs> but that, next time I want one of you guys to shut up, I'm gonna just say, "Let's play that game, A Quiet Place." <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Well, but I am interested internationally. You mentioned like I'm sure they're still using American sign language. I seem like. So, so like oh, there are different, right. you know, different kinds of sign language depending on the language of yeah, origin. So maybe that's something that changes. That was another thing that kind of took me out of the movie was like a lot of the time they seem to be communicating somewhat telepathically, like even without sign language. It was kind of just like, here's this motion, here's this gesture, and this gesture means like this entire sentence. Mm. And I don't know if it directly related to ASL or not. So It's I, a very you know. Italian family. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> well, I like that Charles snuck our internal headline right into that headline, that Charles is going to be a dad. So this is a great opportunity to say Mazel Tov. Oh, thanks, know, Exclusive. So exciting. No film school breaking exclusive. Um, is that going to be in the title? This week, <laughs> Charles Hayes yes. reveals some big news. <laughs> well, also, the funny thing about that is that, like, and you never really think about it until your wife is pregnant, but your wife being pregnant is basically an announcement to the world of, like, oh, yeah, we do it. Ew. Oh, my. Well, no, okay. it's like, uh, well, you just, have that you just did announce to the world. <laughs> if anyone Damn. hadn't got a, on that Shit. fact. Well, <laughs> that like that is until point. the baby comes out and looks like the mailman, just saying. Charles Hayes. 
Liz, Liz Nord point. saying That's stuff about Charles's wife gonna get in a fight. Oh, <laughs> us redheads have to stick together, though. Actually, wow. anyhow, I, we've you know as usual gone super off the rails. I don't even I can't even use my original segue into the next segment, so I'm just gonna jump into it. Um, we often talk about whether or not Netflix is truly supportive of indie filmmakers, and some news this week proves that the company is at least willing to put some cash behind creative people who are new to the industry. Yes, the New York Times reports that Netflix has signed a deal with two little upstarts called Barack and Michelle Obama. Huh? Yeah, exactly. Huh? Yeah, it's true. Announced on Monday, Netflix has signed a multi-year deal with the former president and first lady to produce television shows and films through their new production company called Higher Ground. Barack has said that he does not intend to use the platform to fight political opponents, but rather a release from Netflix... uh, revealed that the Obamas will produce, quote, scripted series, unscripted series, docu-series, documentaries, and features that highlight issues and themes the president pursued during his eight years in office. I, for one, have sort of mixed feelings about this, uh, but overall I'm excited to see what direction it takes, and I bet they'll be working with some of the documentary filmmakers that we love, so that could mean more good work out in the world. Do you, do you think they'll be involved in the Obi-Wan movie? Because Higher Ground... Oh, hmm. nice. yeah, I get it. Yeah, there we go. I believe that was also a Vera Farmiga movie a couple years ago for a religious community. But uh, oh yeah, yeah right? about weed. I think it was about weed. It's uh, not just a weed reference. But, but it, it is interesting. Like I'm wondering. Uh, funny because Barack Obama was recently on the David Letterman talk show that's on Netflix now as well. So maybe this was uh, starting to plant the seeds. I wonder if if this means that the right is going to go toward Hulu. <laughs> uh, you know, or, or what's going to kind of happen there. But it's interesting, the production company aspect of it. The key is the word scripted. Like the idea of Obama's producing a scripted show is sort of like like fascinating. I just feel like it's interesting. It's like we have now a reality star who became president and now former president will become a reality star, sort of. I don't know. It's an interesting moment. And but d- it does show the power of the work that that we all do, you know, that that a former president would choose this path to sort of secure his legacy is is pretty big. It didn't Netflix produce the biopic Barry like three or four years ago. Yeah, right. That was Never really Netflix went anywhere. Version. It was too bad. It didn't. No, but I just find that interesting as well. But we'll see. Now, in some obituary news, which we we don't like to do, but we think it's necessary uh, sometimes. While the name Bill Gold may not necessarily ring a particular bell in your mind, I can guarantee that you're familiar with his work. The great Hollywood movie poster artist and Brooklyn native passed away on Sunday at the age of 97 in Greenwich, Connecticut. His career was a long and fruitful one that goes really far back. His second assignment was creating the poster design for Casablanca in 1942, and his career spanned decades as he created the visual campaigns, if you will, uh, for films like A Streetcar Named Desire in 1951, all the way through J. Edgar in 2011. He actually worked with Clint Eastwood quite a lot. Um, I highly urge you to type Bill Gold posters into Google Images. You can see a wealth of his work from My Fair Lady to A Clockwork Orange, Dirty Harry, in the sting. Uh, and in his obituary from the New York Times, I kind of appreciated the way the paper described Gold's work on creating the poster for Ridley Scott's Alien in 1979, which I think most people probably just see it in their head. Um, for Ridley Scott's terrifying interplanetary space thriller, Mr. Gold skipped the slathering title monster for something less obvious and more foreboding, 
a sinking large dark egg cracked and oozing a molten yellow light hovering out in the galactic night. Uh, of course, you know, it is such an iconic poster and it, it, it has uh, left quite an impression. Uh, the Exorcist poster is another one. Granted, that's a shot from the film itself, but he does a lot of things with the color of it. I mean, uh, that clockwork orange poster exactly. is like a with cultural icon. It's been, it's been recreated so many different times and, you know, sort of like made fun of yeah, yeah, yeah. you know you've seen many riffs on that yeah. that kind of with the bone arrow um and my my favorite probably his poster for deliverance which i actually just looked up uh has like john voigt burt reynolds and i think it's ned Beatty rowing this like canoe out of the close-up of the villain's eyeball it's 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 really neat it's like the best like posters as we've discussed for other artists is like work onto itself that helps expand that story and things of that nature so shout out to bill gold also, uh, the great literary titan and celebrated American author Philip Roth passed away on Tuesday in Manhattan at the age of 85. The Newark, New Jersey native is a legend in literary circles, and we wanted to give a special shout-out to Roth due to the films that were adapted from his work. Uh, in looking up these titles, it was, it was interesting to find audiences and critics kind of wrestling with the films, almost as if the big screen adaptations couldn't necessarily match the brilliance of the source material. Uh, nonetheless, several films that made a strong effort in trying to included Goodbye Columbus from 1969, the film, and that was Roth's uh, novella, uh, starring Ali McGraw and Richard Benjamin, The Human Stain, which was a 2004 film starring Nicole Kidman and Anthony Hopkins, The Humbling, which was a few years ago starring Al Pacino, Elegy with Penelope Cruz and Ben Kingsley, and of course, Portnoy's Complaint, which is such a beloved and, you know, for its time, controversial sexual novel, uh, but it's also really a despised film that apparently gets the wit and satire, like, all wrong and doesn't really match the voice of Philip Roth. Uh, but it is on YouTube for $1.99 if you'd like to rent it. Um, so rest in peace, Philip Roth, and, and check out some of those films, but also really go back to his original work, it sounds like, as well. Thanks, Eric. And now we will turn it over to you, Charles Hayne, for some gear news. Hey, this is Charles Hain. I'm here with uh, Tech and Gear News this week. So, holy cow, has Red been on fire this week? We ended up running three Red stories. First off, they had a hydrogen release party in L.A. Some specs finally started coming out for the platform and its new format, the H4V video format, which is like an immersive stereo video format. And the phone will be supported by both Verizon and... AT&T, which is actually kind of a big deal. If your phone isn't supported on the two major carriers, you're out of luck. So it's good to see that as they pursue this new consumer-facing technology, they're getting support from some of the institutions out there. Then, like two days later, they radically redid their entire product line, simplifying a confusing array of options down to three easy-to-understand choices. And then... They announced a collaboration with the stereography company Lucid, creating a full-size stereography accessory for the hydrogen line that will offer professionals all of the, like, high-end control interaxial convergence that they're looking for. The Lucid release is really fascinating because it gives us an angle into some of the things that are going to be possible with hydrogen. For instance, with the Lucid platform, the phone is going to attach as a viewfinder, which gives users a real-time stereo view of the scene that will make the workflow on set less painful. Of course, anybody experienced in stereo knows that depth scales with screen size. So as the screen size gets bigger, things seem deeper, and sometimes it'll be so deep it can give you a headache. However, 
Red is planning on building out tools for social sharing for these proprietary H4V videos, so it makes sense that you're going to be viewing them on the hydrogen screen as you shoot, since a lot of this content is going to be consumed on that same hydrogen screen later. Then, after that Lucid release, Red has finally simplified their product line. You can get three different sensors, all in the DSMC2 body. You can get the 5K Gemini, their newest sensor, which is Super 35 sized and offers great low light performance. Then there's the 8K Super 35 Helium, and then the giant 8K Monstro VistaVision. That's it. One body, three sensors, a simpler website, way easier shopping. Oh, it's such a relief. So that's what Red has been up to this week alone. You'd think they try and spread that stuff out. Um, after all that, the other bit of news we wanted to highlight this week is that Resolve has really been working to improve their shared workflow. With all the news going on around the release of 15 Beta, which came out at NAB and we covered extensively, one thing that we missed is that Blackmagic has kept implementing improvements to the shared workflow. If the last time you tried to set up a shared server for Resolve required opening up Terminal and using the command line and having to learn what sudo means, um, it's time to give it another look. They've rolled out a dedicated app for creating and sharing databases, which makes setup way easier. And that was really the biggest hurdle before. We set it up, we did some testing, and we found it to be a really killer feature for Resolve that isn't getting some of the attention we think it deserved because, frankly, when it first came out, the setup was difficult. And then sudo, if you don't know what sudo means, I had to learn it for setting up Resolve. And sudo is basically like if you try and tell a computer to do something and a computer's like, no, sudo means like, I really mean it. You have to do it. Um, so sudo is like an order a computer has to follow, which is a funny thing. And you have to use sudo or you used to have to use sudo. And now there's an app. So that is a great improvement. And then a last tiny bit of gear news. The school where I teach, the Fierstein Graduate School of Cinema, is graduating the first class this week, and we're screening all their thesis films tonight at BAM. And we watched them, and it's some of the best short film work I've ever seen. I couldn't be more proud of the school, the students, the faculty, the mayor's office for supporting us. Uh, we're an affordable film school in Brooklyn, and if I didn't give the whole thing a shout-out, I'd be ignoring the biggest tech news of my week. Where, uh, what theater at BAM is it playing in? Uh, it's in Theater 3, actually. Okay. So it's in like a normal old theater where you would see a normal movie. Cool. Yeah. I was there uh, yesterday working with the projectionists and setting volumes and stuff. It's like super, super exciting. And that's Thursday. It's it's actually Wednesday night. Okay. Oh. So it will have already happened by the time all of you listen to this. But I'm sure it'll go great. Yes. Fingers crossed. Congrats to all the students. The ones that I met when I came to uh, give a guest lecture to your students were so smart and enthusiastic and asked great questions. And I just felt like, yeah, you know, these kids are going places. They're not really kids. These yeah. young adults are going places. Well, and also we had like some legitimate Liz Nord fans in the crowd who were like so excited. Well, I mean, welcome to the world. <laughs> Again? Oh, God. If it's not about the podcast, they're coming up to you in classrooms. Yeah, any Fusco dissenters on there? <laughs> <laughs> Keep them in check, please. There was like a John Wing and a Liz Wing. They had different flags. It was cool. cool. Yeah, but the John Wing wouldn't tell us what playing. they thought about anything. <laughs> <laughs> so, Charles, while we have you here, let's... Uh, throw an Ask No Film School question your way. This week, it comes from Blaine Skrenka, who asks, are color grading plugins fundamentally different than LUTs? Do color grading plugins like Magic Bullet Looks for $400 or Film Convert for $150 offer significantly more than a basic LUT? 
What else are the major technological differences between a LUT and a color grading plugin, I assume, is what he's asking, right? I think, yeah, I think so. So, Blaine, that's a great question. And also, and I feel like I say this every week, Blaine Skranka is such a badass name. <laughs> also, is Blaine a guy or is Blaine a gal? It's a guy's name, Blaine. Oh, it could be a girl. Mm-hmm. It could be a girl. All right, I'm going to... All right, well, Blaine, that's a great question. Well, we still love the name. Regardless of gender. And also, why are we even assuming two genders? <laughs> yeah, maybe it's, a guy, is... maybe it's a guy girl. Yeah. Or a girl guy. Well, yeah. they have a great name. Maybe Blaine's it's a tiger. Friend. Maybe it's like an animal. There are huge differences between LUTs and color grading plugins, and you're also forgetting a third option, which is the color grading application. First off, let's define some terms. A LUT, which is just a lookup table, is a very simple file. You can actually usually open a LUT in a text editor and see it as a row of numbers. And it's a very simple file that affects your image. So it's a table where like a pixel comes in a certain brightness and then the table says, make it brighter or make it darker or whatever. So the files are very small and it makes it very easy for processing. And that means that many um, editing platforms and many cameras will let you apply a LUT to your shot. This makes LUTs super common especially on set where you can plug it into your monitor and you could sort of preview like a Miami Vice look for the director or something like that. It also makes it really common for like a log to linear conversion. Like if you shot on the Alexa and you're bringing your footage into Premiere or Media Composer, you might apply a LUT in that case just to get it to look more normal, to get rid of that flat look and make it look more like video. A plugin like Magic Bullet Looks, BCC Color, Film Convert, anything like that is a piece of software that you plug into your editor and then you get to apply one at a time to shots in your timeline to affect them. And your plugins usually have individual controls for shots. You can make things brighter and darker and, and sort of change the intensity. A dedicated grading application like Resolve, Baselight, or Scratch is a separate program that you would move your footage over either right after set to grade it as dailies or after your edit. And it'll involve a little work to get the footage over unless you edit it natively in that platform. But it'll usually have a lot more power. So let's start with the small file size. LUTs are great, but they aren't terrifically customizable. So you can apply them to your footage, and if they look right, great, and if they don't, eh, you're in trouble. There are dedicated apps like Lattice that let you manipulate them, but those are like $200, and those are mostly for DITs. Additionally, since a LUT is just a table, if there are values that fall outside of the table, you're out of luck. So if you have areas of your source shot that are too bright or too dark or too orange and there's no table value for them, they're not going to get affected and you're going to get out of gamut weird issues and things are going to look clipped. So LUTs are really great for like converting footage from log to linear. They're really great on set, but you usually don't see them as like a final grading tool. They might be part of it. If you shot Alexa, you might use that as part of your final grade, but it's not really going to give you the sophisticated control to like apply a different thing shot to shot. Like, for instance, let's say you have someone sitting in the center of frame and you want to darken the corners of frame, a vignette. 98% of shots you see in movies have some sort of vignette on them to focus your eye. You can't do that with a LUT. A LUT applies the same thing to every pixel in frame. So a LUT's not really going to help you for a lot of what you want. Color plugins are a step up, and they're worth investing in since they give you a lot more power with speed. If you don't want to take the time to go to a color grading application, you see a lot of plugins in like broadcast environments where you edit for two days and then you immediately upload, and they can be really great in giving you a lot more control and power much faster. 
The nice thing about plugins is not only do you have a much wider variety of looks with something like Magic Bullet looks, you can also keyframe them. So like let's say the actor walks from inside to outside and you want the shot to get darker as they do so. You can keyframe all your plugins. All that stuff you can't really do with a lot. Vignettes, shapes, all that stuff, there will be a way to do it. However, um, I would consider a dedicated grading application as well. For instance, like Resolve is free. And some people like edit in it now and even skip the NLE altogether. But one thing to know with uh, Resolve, even though it's free, you need a powerful computer. Uh, like six-year-old Mac laptop that's just a MacBook Air won't run it. You need like a graphics card to run it. But if you have a machine with a graphics card, dedicating grading apps offer a ton more power and way better image processing. So we're way beyond the days when your NLE would only like work in YUV 8-bit, which created like banding and blocks. Resolve and other grading applications still work at a way higher bit depth and in a bigger color space like 888 and DaVinci YRGB that give you much better grading results with way fewer artifacts. Combine that with better tracking tools and matting tools and more powerful keyframing. Um, they can have plugins of their own. You can have noise correction. They're really where you want to look when you're getting into like, I want to make my footage look amazing. You want to look at a grading app. Each one of these tools has a place in the toolkit. LUTs are great on set, and for really fast conversions, plugins are great on a tight deadline. But when you have more time, I think it's worth it to take a look at a grading app. Thanks a lot for your question. My goodness, Blaine, did you ever expect such a detailed answer? I know I didn't. Thank you so much, Charles Hain. It was my pleasure. I'll see you guys next in two weeks. Well, as Charles just hinted, we are actually not here next week because John is going to be Portugal the man. Um, so this in our uh, movie segment, we're going to clue you into things you can watch for the next two weeks. You want to kick us off, John? Yeah, sure. So this week coming to Amazon Prime Instant is a movie called The Disaster Artist on June 1st. This was easily one of my favorite movies from last year. While James Franco wasn't nominated for an Oscar after some sexual allegations for his performance as Tommy Wiseau, he did win a Golden Globe. Franco also directed the film, which is a retelling of the infamous production of the cult classic, The Room. If you're not familiar with The Room, just go ahead and type the worst movie ever made into Google. This movie, however, is the perfect example of the adage, it's so bad, it's good. I would definitely watch the original The Room before you watch The Disaster Artist. The film, which first came out back in 2003, has a cult following so large that its creator, the aforementioned Tommy Wiseau, still tours theaters around the world with it today. Franco's film is based on the great book, which was written by Greg Sestero, an aspiring film actor who met Wiseau and made The Room with him from the very beginning. He played Mark in The Room, if you're familiar. And another movie that's coming to Amazon Prime Instant. It seems like Amazon Prime Instant is getting the good stuff these days. Just going to say that now. Uh, Lady Bird is hitting the streaming service on June 3rd. Uh, this is another one of the best movies from last year. And as I said, it's hitting Amazon Prime. Greta Gerwig's semi-autobiographical directorial debut follows a rebellious teenage girl played by Sorsha Ronan in her final year of high school. Sophia Harvey sat down with Gerwig, who won a Golden Globe for Best Director, to talk about her writing process as well as her award-winning directorial efforts. And you can read that on the site. And, and just to clarify, because I always need to, this is not about a female bird. <laughs> Every week, I just feel like I need one of these. Is there a clay pigeon in it? There may not be a clay pigeon either. Is it about Lady Bird Johnson? Oh. Oh, wow. Oh, I got you there. I watched that movie. 
it's Saoirse not. Ronan plays Lady Bird Johnson. <laughs> no. Oh, God, that would be good. And now available on Netflix is Cargo, which stars Martin Freeman and Susie Porter and directed by Yolanda Romke and Ben Howling. Andy and Kay, played by Freeman and Porter respectively, are parents in the Australian outback of the near future, caring for a baby in the aftermath of a massive pandemic that has left behind bands of roving zombies. Everybody, whenever there's a gigantic uh, zombie explosion, I feel like everyone wants to have a baby. Uh, I love zombies. It, it, it must I was do. Say there's like a baby horror theme going. It's on. it. I guess there's something in the air whenever your world is at its end. Uh, throughout the film, the psychological arc is more important than the monster arc. Andy's need to do the right thing for his child before it's too late, and he can no longer control his actions, because maybe something happens to Andy during the movie, uh, is his central objective. To do so, he has to make his way through the outback in what amounts to a cook's tour of the stages of disaster survival. Whoa. When we do see the zombies, they make a considerable impact due to the incredibly careful and elaborate work done by Larry Van de Hoven, the special effects makeup expert on the film. And our own Max Winter actually spoke with him about his process. It is a very low-budget film, so a lot of the special effects were very practical. Um, and he kind of breaks down all that all that stuff and how they use like tree sap and how the actors had to wear special kind of contacts and how that changed things, etc. Uh, you can read that interview on the site, and we will link to it in this post. And coming to HBO this weekend is The Tale, directed by Jennifer Fox. Uh, it premiered at Sundance earlier in the year, where it was nominated for the Grand Jury Prize. Her Fox is known as a documentary filmmaker, and her first film um, was a documentary called Beirut, The Last Home Movie, which also won multiple awards, including the Grand Jury Prize for Best Doc at Sundance. The Tale, however, is a narrative. It's an investigation into one woman's journey, and I believe it's based on uh, Fox's own life story, as she's forced to re-examine her first sexual relationship and the stories we tell ourselves in order to survive. It stars Elizabeth Debicki, Laura Dern, and Jason Ritter. And, I mean, at Sundance on the Ground, everybody was talking about this film. It was the one I think I heard most people say, oh, my God, The Tale. You know, I I can't stop thinking about Mm -hmm. it kind of a thing. Um, our writer Justin Morrow has written up kind of a retrospective on Fox's career that you can also read on the site. And by the way, we will link to all of these posts that we mention on this week's podcast post. And coming to theaters on May 25th is Mary Shelley. This biopic was directed by Haifa Almansor, and it retells the love affair between poet Percy Shelley and 18-year-old Mary Wollstonecraft Godwin, which resulted in Mary Shelley, a.k.a. Mary Wollstonecraft Godwin, writing Frankenstein. It features some of the brightest young actresses on Earth, with Belle Powley, Macy Williams from Game of Thrones, and Elle Fanning as the titular Mary. Emily sat down with Al-Mansour, who, by the way, is the first female Saudi Arabian filmmaker ever, to talk about the challenges of doing a period piece and finding a kick-ass producer who can help you conquer co-production deals and tax incentives. That interview will be on the site soon. I'm interested in seeing that. I wonder if the love affair actually did lead to her writing Frankenstein. It did. And was that was that a good marriage or a bad marriage? I, mean, I was going to say, like, what did that say about the relationship? Yeah, geez. I think it was Oof. bad. <laughs> I want to see it. Um, and also opening in theaters on June 1st is A Kid Like Jake, which also premiered at Sundance earlier this year. And it's based on the 2013 play by Daniel Pearl that was produced by Lincoln Center. 
It focuses on two Brooklyn parents, played by Jim Parsons and Claire Danes, as they attempt to get their young son, Jake, into a competitive, specialized elementary school, while also wrestling with the fact that their son may be trans, and and what this means for how he's perceived by fellow students and adults that are tasked with quote-unquote, like, assessing his worth to be accepted to these prestigious schools. Um, Does that work against him or not? And they're kind of exploring that because Jake is such a young uh, person. Uh, I chatted with Silas Howard, a transgender filmmaker himself, who's also known for his directorial work on the series Transparent, uh, about adapting the play for the screen and finding appropriate New York City exteriors and locations for a low-budget project where people worked for scale for the good of the production. And now moving on to some upcoming deadlines. So the Writers on the Verge program has a deadline on May 31st. Writers on the Verge is a 12-week series of classes that take place at NBC Universal in Universal City, California, and are intended to give screenwriters all the tools necessary to step into a real writer's room and get to work. Participants will leave the program with an improved portfolio and maybe even a job. That would be nice. Past writers have gone on to work on NBC shows like Community, The Blacklist, Chicago Fire, Two Broke Girls, and more. The online application requires submission of a resume and a spec script for one of a specific list of shows. Although original scripts are not accepted at this stage, semifinalists will be asked for an original television pilot as their second writing sample. So that's a lot of writing, but NBC has some good shows like The Good Place, which I just started watching. And our good friends over at the Points North Institute have two deadlines tomorrow, so get on it. That's May 25th. The first one is their fellowship. It's a unique opportunity um, by the organizers of the Camden International Film Festival, which is is linked to the Points North Institute. So for the fellowship, six filmmakers or filmmaking teams have the chance to accelerate development of their feature-length doc projects through a combination of funding, focused mentorship, workshops, industry meetings, and a public pitch session at the Camden International Film Festival, which I've talked about on the show, and we've actually had a podcast episode dedicated to pitching based on that experience. Um, The filmmakers also receive two all-access passes to the festival, plus accommodations and other stipends. It's a really great fellowship with just excellent people, Um, and some awesome doc films have come out of it. They also have a deadline for the short-form editing residency, So if you could use some time to work on your next short, you can get that, plus seven nights of accommodations on the picturesque coast of Maine, a $1,000 travel stipend, and passes to the Kempton International Film Festival and Forum. If that sounds like what you need, definitely check this one out. It takes place the 9th to the 16th of September, right before the festival, and it provides a focused creative space for independent nonfiction filmmakers and multimedia journalists to work on their short films or episodic documentaries with guidance from experienced mentors. In the past, these have included people from Field of Vision, Vice, Vimeo, Great Big Story on CNN and Netflix. So another fantastic opportunity from the Points North Institute. And that's only for nonfiction uh, shorts. Yeah. That's right. Both of these are for documentary filmmakers, as is the Camden International Film Festival and the Points North Institute. And in festival deadlines, we have Indie Memphis, which the deadline for is May 28th. Say it in a twang. Oh, man. This sounds like such a cool festival, by the way. I know a couple of people that have gone. Uh, Indie Memphis takes place November 1st through the 5th in Memphis, Tennessee. The 2017 festival attracted a record-setting attendance for nearly 200 feature films, shorts, and music videos. Indie Memphis also has a strong focus 
as we mentioned, on music, connecting filmmakers and festival attendees to the live music scene that pulses through the city. As such, they are one of the only festivals in the world to feature live music in the theater before every screening. How cool. Yeah. And their new music film categories and music video showcase will expand their emphasis on collaboration between artists of all kinds. And it, it just sounds like a lot of fun. Uh, a, a buddy of mine, uh, Zach Mandanak, went, I think, a year or two ago, and they have the Memphis Grizzlies basketball announcer there for, like, their award ceremony. He, like, hosts it or something like that. It just sounds like a crazy good time. And I think we should all go. As I always mention, every week we should probably go to this one, too. You're a crazy good time, Eric. Thank you. Thank you. The 45th Annual Student Academy Awards has a deadline on June 1st. These take place in October from the 7th to the 11th in Los Angeles, California. The Student Academy Awards recognizes and honors student filmmakers who demonstrate excellence in the creation of motion pictures. Gold, silver, and bronze medal awards, which include cash grants of $5,000, $3,000, and $2,000, respectively, and a trip to Los Angeles for the week, may be given by the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences in recognition of outstanding achievements in student filmmaking in each of five domestic and international film school categories. Those categories are narrative, animation, alternative-slash-experimental, documentary, and narrative for international film schools. And the Santa Fe Independent Film Festival has a deadline on June 4th. This is their late deadline. It takes place October 17th through the 21st, 2018 in Santa Fe, New Mexico. And it's been dubbed a Young Sundance by IndieWire and an all-inclusive resort for cinephiles by Filmmaker Magazine. SFIF is not only the most attended film event in the area, it is now a top regional fest on the circuit. It's also been named in Movie Maker Magazine's 50 festivals worth the entry fee for the past five years. Wow. And speaking of wow, this week's words of wisdom. <gasps> wow. We did not, I don't think we played that, but let's go with it. Uh, comes uh, These words come from someone with the initials WW. Uh, wow. We really did not play any of this. Uh, so oh, I don't, I'm going to have to say this very casually. So I, I was hanging out with Vim Vendors last Friday, right? We were, you know, in, in Manhattan. No big deal. Manhattan. Shooting you know, we, the shit. Yeah, we just went to a Best Buy. He's like, I made that, I made that. <laughs> you know, it was just kind of going around. Uh, Played some Wii. We did. Uh, Interviewed him for uh, his latest documentary, which is Pope Francis, A Man of His Word, which is currently in in theaters and follows the mission and world travels of the current head of the Catholic Church. Uh, Vendors was granted unprecedented access to interview and follow the Pope, and the Vatican's allowance of creative freedom left Vendors with a wealth of possibilities, but also some, like, troubles. When discussing his original eight-hour cut, Vendors told me, quote, I did show them a rough cut. They said, okay, it's too long, obviously, but we love what you're doing, so continue. They never gave me any correction, so to speak, or any demands. And in between that did become sort of a burden. Normally you have producers and distributors, and with that come certain expectations. Sometimes a director is happy to have somebody helping with the dramaturgy, and here I was left to my own devices. That's great on one hand, and on the other hand, I thought, wait a minute, can anybody help me out a little bit? The institution gave me an incredible freedom, and that was courageous in itself. But then again, that was the whole point of the film. There would have been no point if they had interfered or produced it themselves, because then everybody would have said, well, this is a commissioned work by the church. I think it would not have been seen as legitimate if they hadn't told me, you go and run with it. 
and they did actually let me run all the way. Um, I, I think this was interesting because it speaks to both the pressures of gaining unprecedented access to a subject and the wealth of perhaps self-imposed, maybe in this case, expectations that you have for how you're going to present it and, and, and that person. Uh, you, you know, you kind of, in this case, want the church's approval, but you don't necessarily want their input. And if you do, how do you maintain your original creative goal with the project itself? So you're always kind of, we kind of speak of, as documentary filmmakers, respecting the subject, but not letting them kind of control the story. It is your film and how you're kind of portraying it. Um, and it's interesting how hands-off in ways the Vatican was and how some ways that's good and in some ways that provided its own challenges as well. I thought your interview with him was fascinating, and we will uh, we'll link to that as well. He's been out there promoting the film, and he's speaking all over the place. He actually just spoke at the International Documentary Association, and he was also dropping all kinds of wisdom there. Um, and they were tweeting up a storm, so I got a whole bunch of quotes. As a doc maker who dabbles in fiction, I appreciated this nugget from him, who himself has vacillated between the two forms throughout his career. So referring to fiction, he said, quote, if you let reality flow into the story, you can make it more beautiful than you can imagine, which I thought was great, especially in this age of kind of hybrid documentaries. So we have another big old shout out segment this week. I'm going to jump right into it. Sundance has announced the 13 projects and filmmakers selected for its 2018 Directors and Screenwriters Labs. And IFP has selected the 20 projects and directors for its 2018 Filmmaker Labs. So congrats to all who were selected. We hope that some of our listeners are among the lab participants this year. And if you are, definitely let us know. Meanwhile, the Cinegear Expo kicks off in Los Angeles on May 31st and runs till the 3rd with exhibits June 2nd and 3rd. Um, this is kind of Los Angeles's answer to NAB. It's smaller but much more focused on um, cinema gear, hence its name. And uh, some of the bigger brands like Red have even pulled out of NAB in favor of putting all their resources towards Cinegear. So this year, our own Ryan Koo will be speaking at an Adorama event during the expo. And Charles Hain, who we chatted with earlier, will be doing some coverage for us on the ground. So if you see either of them at Cinegear, say hey. Closer to home, the Brooklyn Film Fest kicks off with an opening night screening and party on June 1st and runs through June 10th. On the 9th, they have a day-long program called the BFF Exchange, especially for filmmakers at the beautiful Kickstarter offices with panels and pitch sessions. It's not an exchange of BFFs. You don't go there oh. and swap out your BFF for somebody else's BFF. That would be great. Are, are we invited to the party? Because, again, I'm never on these lists. Well, I am. You're invited to the party, <laughs> but I'm going to be in Los Angeles, so maybe oh, you. Can I can go, go as your. I can go as you. Wear a red wig. Okay, I'll do it. <laughs> right. I have that. I was in a production of Annie once as the lead, so I can do this quite easily. Not red wig and the angry itch. No, no. Shout out to last week. Go see how to talk to girls at parties. So anyway. <laughs> The Brooklyn Film Fest documentaries are uh, programmed by our good friend Julie Bridgem, who's a talented doc producer herself, and she put together a great lineup this year. One of the docs I'm looking forward to is called Working in Protest by Suki Hawley and Michael Galinsky. I'm fans of their feature documentary work. They're known for Battle for Brooklyn and Horns and Halos and several others, but they've also been video activists filming protests for 30 years. And they put this new film together from 30 years of protest material. So we will be um, premiering some exclusive shorts from the filmmakers, along with an interview by Oakley Anderson Moore on the site. So keep an eye out for that. Finally, a most important shout out. 
Next Monday is Memorial Day here in the U.S., and if you've lost a loved one who was serving in the military, our hearts go out to you. Thank you for your sacrifice. Now, as we mentioned, we won't be here next week, but there will be plenty for you to listen to because we're going to have interview podcasts Monday and the following Monday. And of course, next Wednesday is the final episode of our 10-part miniseries first feature about how to make your first feature soup to nuts. In terms of next Monday's interview podcast, I'm really excited. I got a chance to catch up with my friend and mentor, Tiffany Schlain, who we can all learn so much from. She founded the Webby Awards and has had four films in Sundance for starters. But in the episode, we really focus on what she's been doing the past couple years, which is that she and her small film studio have developed a new model to use their short films to start global conversations with screenings and discussions across all continents on the same day. So it's kind of like a big worldwide virtual premiere Um, and they do this kind of combination of live and virtual events so far they've engaged get this over 50 million people in dialogue through their efforts it's pretty amazing so in the episode we talk about the mechanics of getting this done and how other filmmakers can turn their movies into movements and then the following monday john what do we have we have a episode from Oakley Anderson Moore that is uh, with a couple of guests that are really entertaining. One, Nick Offerman, who actually has been on the podcast before, uh, crazily enough. And two, the director of Heartbeats Loud, which is uh, the movie which the podcast is about. Uh, They really get into detail about how to realistically portray live music on film. So that's a going to be a really specific and really interesting podcast if you uh, ever want to make a movie that doesn't just look like a music video, but looks like something where people are creating music in the moment. And if you don't want to miss those episodes, make sure that you subscribe to the No Film School podcast on iTunes or wherever you get podcasts. If you can't find it, let us know and we'll make sure it will be on your favorite platform. Um, also, it really helps us out if you give us those um, nice ratings on iTunes and the Apple Store. Um, and everything we talked about, as I mentioned on this show, will be in the podcast post this week, along with tons of articles on nofilmschool.com about the craft of filmmaking. And we hope that you'll stay in touch when you miss us so much next week. I am at Liz Film on Twitter. I'm expecting a baby. No, I'm not. But <laughs> I just feel like after what Charles said, I feel like we should just confirm that we're all that we're all doing pretty great in our personal lives. Thank you. I'm at Eric Lures. Tweet at me if you want to know the sex. I'm at John. What did what did you say? Gender. If you want to know the sex, tweet at me if you want to know the gender. Tweet at him if you want to have sex. I'm at Jim underscore John underscore Jim. Jim John Jim. Jim 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 John Jim. I'm going to need two weeks off after this. Eric is too befuddled to even say Jim John Jim Jim Jim. Sorry. And we'll leave you with that. Um, See you in two weeks. Thanks, guys. Bye.